You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It's considered one of the single greatest six-word short stories ever written. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. This shortest of short stories and the tragedy and heartbreak conveyed by it often attributed to Ernest Hemingway. He may or may not have written it, but somebody wrote it, and it's a classic. Now, I don't know if the 40-word short story is a thing like the six-word short story is a thing. The six-word short story is a legit literary subgenre. But if the 40-word short story wasn't a thing, it's a thing now. Because the world's greatest 40-word short story was published on Craigslist last week. Under New York, Manhattan, event gigs, Be Naked at My Sister's Wedding. That's just the title. Now the body of the ad. An instant classic. My sister is having an outdoor wedding in New Canaan, Connecticut in May. I want someone to be naked in the woods and to run through the wedding in order to ruin it. I will protect you from my family. For Sale Baby Shoes Never Worn forces the reader to think about a baby who might not have lived long enough to wear those shoes and the grief-stricken parents selling those shoes, which is where our minds go, even though there are other possible explanations for For Sale Baby Shoes Never Worn. Maybe the new parents were given so many pairs of baby shoes at the baby shower that their child outgrew the pair that's being sold now without ever having a chance to wear them. But when we don't have all the information, when there are blank spaces – Worst-case scenarios rush in to fill the void. We are a catastrophizing species. This 40-word short story, this Craigslist ad, it forces us to think in catastrophic terms about these two siblings. What the hell happened here? What went down between this woman, this poor bride, and her brother and or sister that brought them to this point? Did the bride steal her sister's boyfriend? Did she steal her brother's boyfriend? And given all the different ways a wedding can be ruined, why a naked stranger hiding in the woods and then running through the wedding? Is the bride a gymnophobiac that's someone who's afraid of naked bodies? Or does she think streakers are Antifa? There are so many questions, so many places your brain goes when you read and reread this story, which I have been reading and rereading for days And there are no innocent, non-catastrophic explanations for why someone would want to ruin their sister's wedding like this. And the last sentence. Oh, my God. The last sentence. Anyone tempted to take this gig is going to really think twice after reading, I will protect you from my family. It's clearly not just the bride who's going to be upset. The whole family is going to be upset, violently upset if the person who runs naked through the wedding needs protection afterwards. And can you really trust someone who hired you to ruin their sister's wedding to actually protect you when naked and alone you've been cornered in a tree by a pack of angry groomsmen? And most importantly, is this a paying gig? The ad does not say. But I would like to thank the author, the anonymous author of Be Naked at My Sister's Wedding. Because whenever I started stressing out over the weekend about the pandemic or about Donald Trump's refusal to concede the election – or the violent fascists pouring into Washington, D.C. this weekend to recreate scenes right out of Weimar, Germany, I would think about that wedding and everything that must have gone wrong between that bride and her sibling 
And unlike thinking about the greatest six-word short story ever written, for sale, baby shoes never worn, thinking about the greatest 40-word story ever written, it actually made me feel a little bit better. Or maybe it was the pot. And before we start the show and while we're on tiny things, please cue the tiniest of tiny violins for Jared and Ivanka. Both CNN and Vanity Fair reported this week on the dilemma facing the worst couple. Where do they go after they leave the White House? I hear hell is nice this time of year. I would encourage them to think about going to hell. But they apparently want to reenter New York society and New York society, the people at your Met Galas, your Fashion Weeks, your Toniest schools, those people, people who used to tolerate, if not like Jared and Ivanka, they don't want them back, according to CNN and Vanity Fair. Putting kids in cages, gaslighting, the country, stoking racism and violence and white supremacism and helping daddy while he attempts to stage a coup, apparently not popular with the majority of Americans who just voted them out and not at all popular with New Yorkers who voted against Trump and Jared and Ivanka in overwhelming numbers. And that was before Ivanka's creepy daddy threatened to withhold a COVID vaccine from residents of New York because Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, wasn't nice enough to him. That's the sort of thing Anna Winter is probably going to take personally and then scratch your name off the invite list for the next Met Gala. I don't live in New York, but I love New York and I get to New York as often as I can and I'm looking forward to getting back to New York after the pandemic is over. And while I don't move in the same circles Jared and Ivanka do and have no interest in moving in those circles, if those vile motherfuckers ever walk into a New York cafe or pizza place or sex dungeon I happen to be in – I am going to yell at them until they leave. And I can't imagine, knowing what I know of New Yorkers, that I'll be the only one yelling. All right, coming up on today's show, Lena Askasabdoon joins me on the micro and the magnum to talk about a controversy roiling the kink community and Dr. Daniel Westreich, a.k.a. Dr. Bummer, the Savage Lovecast's go-to epidemiologist, joins me on the magnum to talk pandemic, everything you need to know about spikes, vaccines, and Thanksgiving. All that coming up on today's Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I have a sex success story for you. So my partner and I are in a wonderful non-monogamous relationship for the last three years. And uh, he's bi. And so we really enjoy dating and playing with guys together. So we invited over a lover for the first time to have drinks with us. And my partner has a very demanding and high-stress job at a startup. His schedule is really unpredictable. He might have meetings late at night with other countries or with his team. And so we knew that there was a possibility of him having to have a work meeting during our, our date, but we decided to move forward with the date. And so we were having drinks with this guy. It was going really well. We had been chatting with him for a while online prior and so really excited to meet him in person. And then the drinks transitioned to some playtime in the bedroom and we all started having sex. But then at 930, uh, my partner had to remove himself from the threesome to attend this work meeting. He said that he would be back as soon as he could. So me and this guy continued to have sex and he was slapping my ass. And so after about 35 minutes, my partner 
returned to the bedroom and told us the story of first how he had to continue to mute himself between talking because you could hear the ass slapping sounds on his work meeting from the next room. And then he told us that the meeting was dragging on and on and that it wasn't going to be done for another multiple hours. And so he had to lie. The lie that he came up with was that I cut my hand on some broken glass and was bleeding everywhere and possibly he had to take me to the emergency room and he was assessing if I needed stitches. And so, oh no, he had to emergency leave this meeting and take care of me because I, I was bleeding everywhere. And so he told us this when he came back to the bedroom and we were all like rolling on the bed laughing about how he was able to kind of extract himself from this meeting and uh, and rejoin the threesome. We enjoyed the rest of our time. Our lover left. And then my partner had to rejoin the meeting after the threesome, telling his team that the bleeding stopped. Maybe I was going to need stitches, but you know, he, he really, it was, it was this really intense emergency where I cut my hand. We, we laugh about it now and his team has no idea that he left the meeting to not take care of my bleeding hand, but to enjoy a really fucking sexy threesome. Sounds like a good time was had by all. Thank you for calling in and sharing your sex success story. And here's hoping no one else on your boyfriend's team is a Savage Lovecast listener because, yeah, that would be awkward. If you want us to start the show with your sex success story or your quarantine sexy story, give us a call 206-302-2064 and we might open next week's Lovecast with your sexy story. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgender bisexual woman in my late 20s living in the Midwest. I met a man through a more serious dating app back in July And we went on about 10 dates and have also slept together about five times. He had just accepted a new job offer when we met. And now that he's working there, he says that he is very overwhelmed with work to do anything else, such as working out or hanging out with me. I have not seen him in two months because he had to travel out of state and just got back last week. Although we texted daily while he was gone, it was not anything deep or connection forming conversations. And it wasn't from me. I tried to engage him more to fully get to know him and see what's going on. And I told him that I don't feel a lot of enthusiasm coming from him. The last year, I've been putting a lot of work on myself, setting boundaries and also being vulnerable. So I was okay with shooting my shot with him and being honest. But now I am starting to feel like I'm coming off as desperate. I understand his new job is more demanding than he anticipated for. And that it's a priority for him because I've also made my career my priority. However, I still have needs and I feel like he should be able to make time to see me considering he lives eight miles away. I have a very high sex drive also and holding out for this long has also affected my mood. Like I said, I've tried communicating with him on what his intentions are since he he left just a month after we started talking. And while he says that he wants to keep talking to me, he doesn't make any efforts and he keeps blaming it on his job. I know that he really is stressed out and has all of these tasks to complete, but I should also be some sort of priority, especially if he was on a serious dating app and he was texting me on the daily. Should I just stop chasing after someone that doesn't communicate well 
Or do I continue being patient while he gets used to his new job role? It was the best sex I've ever had, Dan. He is my type physically. He is from the same country. But personality-wise, he is very nerdy, very shy, very analytical. So I don't know if he's been in a relationship before. You have needs, and he's not meeting them. You'd like him to make time for you. He's not making that time for you. I think you should stop chasing after this guy. If it's the case that he isn't meeting your needs or able to meet your needs or making time for you because the new job is so stressful, well, tell him to give you a buzz after the new job becomes less stressful or he has a different job. Tell him to reach out to you when he's got more time for you, time he doesn't have right now. And who knows? Maybe you'll hear from him at some point in the future. Maybe you won't. It's great that the sex was so great. Great that the sex was the best sex you've ever had. I hate to be the asshole who would say a thing like this, but I am the asshole who would say a thing like this. Just because it was the best sex you've ever had doesn't mean it was the best sex that other person has ever had. The sex may not have been as great for him as it was for you. But if it was as great for him as it was for you, perhaps you withdrawing a little bit, not that you should do this as a stratagem, but perhaps you pulling back a little bit will encourage him, will inspire him to reach out to you and make you feel like he is, to the extent that he can right now with the pressure that he's under, prioritizing you. If you're doing all the reaching out, if you're doing all the initiating of all of the text conversations, he may not feel any need to initiate, to, to, to make an effort that's perceptible to you because you're sustaining everything. I think you should work a little less hard at it. Then if you see some effort on his side, maybe you'll feel a little bit better about the effort that you've been putting in and you can resume putting those efforts in. But if you don't see anything from his side, he may not be as interested in you. Even if the sex was as spectacular for him as it was for you, he may not be as interested as you are. And that's what you want, isn't it? You want to be with a guy who's as crazy about you as you are about him. And if he relates to people differently than you do, or if he's neuroatypical in some way, hopefully he can articulate that to you, to your satisfaction. You say that he's a little nerdy. You say that he's a little analytical. Well, sometimes people who are nerdy and analytical don't come across, particularly via text, as passionate in the way that they might when they are with you physically as, as he did when he was with you physically. And if right now he's too busy to be with you physically, okay, maybe you'll see that again from him in the future. But right now, I think you should pull way back. Right now, you might want to tag and release. Tell him that you're interested when he's not so busy in getting back together, in spending time together when he has time to invest in you emotionally and socially, not just physically and sexually. And you can pick things back up at that time, but you're not going to wait for him. You're going to see which other options are in the interim. Hi, Dan. 25, bisexual male here. I've struggled with my sexuality my whole life. I've experimented with sex and relationships, both with guys and girls. And I've never found a place where I'm zen, if you will. I'm not a homophobic person, and sexually I prefer men. However, I cannot necessarily connect very well romantically and secure long-term relationships with them like I can with women. Currently, I'm in about a year-long relationship with my girlfriend. 
and our sexual and emotional chemistry together is honestly the best I've ever had. I told her about me being bisexual, and she's fine with it. But in my head, I keep feeling this need to jerk off or have sex with guys. Is this normal? Or how do I know that I'm actually bisexual and not just using it as a stepping stone or a mask to being gay? I'm a big fan of Robin Oak's definition of bisexuality. I'm going to quote her here. I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way, and not necessarily to the same degree. Seems to me that you count and qualify as bisexual and your bisexuality, your bisexual identity your lived experience as a bisexual man is, if I may borrow the term from Tumblr, valid. You are heteroromantic and bisexual. You connect sexually and emotionally with women and that's fine and that's wonderful and you're in a wonderful long-term relationship with a woman right now that's characterized by a strong sexual connection and a strong emotional connection and you connect sexually with men but not emotionally in the same way to the same degree as Robin Oaks would say with men, not to the same way or to the same degree that you connect with women and you shouldn't sit around doubting whether you're really bisexual. That is a real and valid form of bisexual male identity. And I think it's a really common form of bisexual male identity. Sometimes I think the majority of male bisexuals are heteroromantic and that's fine and you're fine. All that said, you do need to interrogate yourself around internalized homophobia. Some guys can't connect. Some guys who are bi can't connect with other guys emotionally as much as they may enjoy other guys sexually and socially and have friendships and romantic friendships and even sexual friendships and friends with benefits, connections that are long-term, but they don't connect emotionally to the same degree that they can connect with women. And maybe that's because they're legitimately homoromantic without a trace of internalized homophobia. But it's also true in some cases that internalized homophobia, which is a powerful and damaging force – an internal force prevents a person from forming a same-sex relationship. They will allow themselves to have the same-sex sex, the gay sex that they want to have, but they draw a line, subconsciously draw a line and will not allow themselves to have a same-sex relationship, to connect emotionally, not because they're incapable of it, but some part of themselves won't allow themselves to go there because of the implications, the implication being it's kind of gay and gay is kind of bad still, even for this person who's having a ton of gay sex. And it may have FWB connections with other guys that they've sustained for years. And I think this is a subconscious process in some cases, but not in all, which is why you need to interrogate. You need to really examine and scrutinize yourself and your psyche for any evidence of internalized homophobia. And if you've done that, you've done that work, you've done that self-scrutiny and you found no evidence of internalized homophobia, okay, well, then maybe you don't suffer from any internalized homophobia and you just are legitimately bi in the way that you're bi, bisexual and heteroromantic. I do think all of us, gay, straight, bi, pan, have a responsibility to really think about 
who we desire, how we desire people and whether the limitations, you know, it's just a preference dude, those kinds of limitations are ours or they were imposed on us, whether we've internalized messaging we received from the culture, from family, from faith traditions and therefore are limiting ourselves or if it's just who we are and what we want and it comes from inside ourselves. It's not an imposed limitation. It's not some negative shit that we've internalized about different kinds of people that we might be attracted to sexually and emotionally. You know, and the reason to do that work is because it makes it possible for you to have more and different kinds of people in your life if you can pick that lock and free yourself from imposed limitations, from preferences that you were assigned, not preferences that you genuinely have. It's in your own best interest, not in the best interest of all those other people you, you know, who you might sleep with, but in your own best interest because it opens your world to other people and different kinds of people and different kinds of relationships. But you can do all that work and still wind up where you're at. You can do all that work and still wind up being, in my case, 100 percent homosexual or in your case, 100 percent heteromantic and bisexual. And quickly, one of the messages, one of the things that the culture tells us about bi guys is that bi guys are all secretly on their way to being gay guys. And that is not true. And we can see how powerfully that message is hammered home by the fact that you as a bi guy think that it might be true or worry that it might be true. Hey, Dan Nancy. I'm the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a bi cis guy uh, living currently in the Midwest. I've lived in couple of other coastal cities before moving here, fairly active in my kink communities in all the cities. And there's been something that's popped up a couple of times recently that I was kind of wanting uh, your take on. In a few of the kink groups that I'm in, there's been uh, pictures that have been circulating of a couple doing puppy play in public, either, or it's usually a, a woman, you know, leading a man on a, uh, on a leash and the man's on his, on all fours in the full puppy gear and everything. Um, and I mean like the leather puppy gear, not like a fursuit. And in the groups that this has been shared in, it has without fail sparked off this massive, uh, flame war back and forth between people, half of whom are saying that, you know, you shouldn't do kink in public because you're subject or because uh, there's a bunch of people who are in public who are, you know, not consenting to see you do that kink. And other people who are saying it's not inherently sexual, don't inherently sexualize it. <clears throat> You're being close-minded. Don't call yourself kinky if you think that this is wrong to do in public. And I just, you know, was wondering what your take on this is. I personally am of the mind that uh, if you perform a kink in the view of others, you are getting a charge out of that. You are getting enjoyment out of that, whether that enjoyment is sexual or not. And uh, because of that, the people who are viewing you performing that kink should have a say as to whether or not they're involved. If they're coming into a kink space, then, yeah, they are, by definition of entering that space, consenting to see what's going on in there. But if they're on public, they're not consenting. And not to be a well, someone think of the children person, but there's people there that can't give consent. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Lena Dune, sex writer, BDSM meme creator. You can find her on Instagram at Ask a Sub, where she does a lot of really important and informed education around dom-sub sex and relationships. Hey, Lena, welcome back to the show. 
Hey, Dan, thank you so much for having me back. So this came up uh, in October, toward the end of October. Uh, a pro-dom in mm-hmm. Los Angeles took her sub to a high-end grocery store on a leash. And he was wearing a puppy mask and I think some wrist restraints. And he was crawling around on his knees behind her. And it just kicked off this firestorm in kink Twitter and kink spaces and kink Instagram. Can you give us your take on the appropriateness or inappropriateness of kink play in public? Yeah. So um, with this case, so basically this picture went viral. This um, pro-dom is walking her seemingly cis male sub on a leash through this high-end grocery store. And um, spoiler alert, I saw it and I wasn't offended, which um, the kinky internet has told me is, you know, pretty um, controversial. So for me, like, it's a really interesting question because it's all about consent in public spaces. And when you really drill down on the idea of consent in public spaces, it's like, what do you even encounter ever in your life in a public space that you consented to? And, and then for me, it's, it comes down to sort of like, what is the harm being done? After this photo was taken, they took a walk around the grocery store and some eyewitnesses saw her then start to paddle him in public. And I think like that's sort of an interesting line of, of um, you know, is it a problem just to see people dressed up in costume or does the scene begin when the paddling starts? And I think for me, that's where it starts. The dressing up in costume thing is really what leaps out at me because, you know, everyone is going to go think of the children. You know, what are you going to say to the mm-hmm. children? And it's actually, you know, it's a guy in a puppy mask on a leash. It's easy to say to a child, they're in costume. They're playing. Mm-hmm. Like BDSMers call mm-hmm. it play. A kid isn't going to really have a problem with that, with wrapping their head around that. It's, no. it's adults are going to feel uncomfortable having to explain that to him, but or to a child, uh, because of their adult issues, what they bring to it. What, what really this guy, the caller is asking is, you know, whether it's okay to do anything inherently sexual in public. And it obviously is because vanilla people do vanilla shit in public all the time. And it's so common that no one notices, but it's a problem when kinky people totally. do something in public. But yeah. where, do, where do you draw the line? Like people can't whip their dicks out in public and start to <laughs> masturbate. This guy is obviously getting off on this. He, one of the things he's getting off on is other people seeing this being done to him. And so it's the mm-hmm. other people's sort of bank shot tangential involvement in this scene that's arousing him. And aren't they drafting – People who just wanted to go to the grocery store into the scene, involving them in in the scene in a way that is, you know, violates sort of a low bar idea about consent. I mean, yeah, the the thing is that, like, I wouldn't do it, you know, but then but then what the kinky Internet asks you to do is sort of give um, like a broad prescription about what everyone's behavior should be. Like the thing that for me really struck me is if I thought like. So this is in this super fancy luxury grocery store. And that to me kind of makes it funny. Whereas if it were happening in a working class grocery store among people who might be less clued into what's going on and they're just trying to go about their day like that somehow transgresses in a different way than this thing. But like, obviously no one should be violating people's consent. You know, I'm not going to say everybody go out and do this, but like there is a question of like social norms get broadened because people on the fringes choose to live visibly and uh, you know in other cases people aren't getting a sexual charge out of it the way this guy might be but 
Um, yeah, it, God, it's, it's so tricky. <laughs> it is tricky because where do you draw the line? Like, you know, if he was walking around and she was dressed the way she's dressed in the photo that went viral, it's not hard to find. Just uh, Google woman leash man grocery store pops right up. Um, if he was just wearing a collar that indicated that they were in a, a DS relationship, it might arouse him to wear that collar in public. But if he's standing up and walking around, I, I think the you know the difference for a lot of people is going to be that's easier to explain to a child, or less alarming yeah. for a grandma. But you know, <laughs> some degree of you know, you know DS relationships being perceptible in public seems to be fine if it's religious conservatives and the wives are being submissive to the husband and walking around oh <laughs> with, you know, Duggar hair piled up on top of their heads and 20 kids. That's fine. <laughs> what you can infer about that uh -huh. relationship is fine where the wife is submissive to the husband, obviously. Uh, and, and people are comfortable mm -hmm. with that. But when it comes to kink or DS or a man being submissive to a woman in a way that's clearly, you know, through the BDSM filter, People bump on it. Yeah. I mean, if he had been wearing a dog costume from the Halloween store, for example, you would look at that and you would think, oh, there's some theater kids doing some performance art. But because it's leather and because we can then infer from the leather that something ambiently sexual might be happening, like the freak out, I think it is is valid, but slightly disproportionate to what's actually going on. Like, you know, maybe... Some of the people who saw it thought, hey, that's great, and then went along with their day. Like, we're really, like, honing in on maybe the one person who is having a real triggered reaction. And when you talk about triggers, like, vanilla people, yeah, they kiss in public, but I think a better um, comparison is that vanilla couples will sometimes fight in public loudly, and that can be actually really triggering to somebody. Like, vanilla kissing is one thing, but, like, people loudly fighting with each other i would never consent to that and it would bother me but we're not having this nuanced conversation about whether people fighting in public is triggering people instead it's like it, we we hold ourselves in the kink community to this extremely high standard of consent that the rest of the world doesn't really hold itself to so it sort of feels like tying ourselves in knots to figure out what's okay when, you know, th that conversation is being had in other spaces. The phrase you used that really jumped out at me was ambiently sexual. That, <laughs> that if something is explicitly sexual, that's not okay, right? But if there's yeah. ambient sexuality, maybe that's where it's all right and everybody just needs to suck it up and deal and not yeah. judge people uh, or hold kinky people to a different standard than you would hold vanilla people to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I'm not, it, like, we're talking like there's a spectrum here where on one end you can tell that something sexual might be occurring. And then on the other end, somebody's, you know, it's like flashing you. Obviously that's very, very wrong. But if you can look at an accessory someone's wearing and infer that that adult person might have sex or might have something to do with sex at that moment, I just don't know like how important it is to, legislate that on this case-by-case -case basis. I don't know. Is this a problematic take, Dan? Is this allowed? <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's problematic. I think it's nuanced. And when it comes to sex, uh, people are uncomfortable with nuance and ambiguity. Uh, and often, you know, there is no one rule that you can apply mm -hmm. broadly and fairly that everybody 
can hew to because, you know, we allow people to make out in public uh, if they're vanilla. Kinky people sometimes make out in public and are perceived as vanilla and you know, who knows what they're going to get up to mm-hmm. at home. And sometimes that making out goes really far and people chuckle and say, get a room, add mm-hmm. a dog collar mm-hmm. and people freak out. Yeah, suddenly it's horrifying. And what does that tell us about somebody besides something that we should assume about a large percentage of everybody out there, that there's a lot of people out there into DSX and being aware of that shouldn't be a torment to you. The the, the problem though Mm -hmm. becomes in, you know, saying that everybody should deal and you don't have a reasonable expectation when you're out in public not to encounter people who may be being, you know, ambiently sexual that mm-hmm. some people who have no judgment are going to push at those boundaries or abuse that and, you know, insist that what they're doing is ambient when the a reasonable person would perceive it as explicit. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to make mm-hmm. case-by-case judgments that are going to feel unfair. I mean, yeah, but that's that's like you can't make broad sweeping determinations about people's sexuality that apply in every case. I think we try so hard, but it just isn't possible because there's just too much nuance, too much uh, human element involved. Yeah. And maybe we could freak out a little less about grown men on leashes in grocery stores and a little bit more on kids <laughs> in cages at the border separated from their parents. Maybe we need yeah, frankly, perspective. I mean, frankly, as long as people are walking around with MAGA hats where I can see them, that's the consent issue that I'm going to be worried about. This one is fine. (laughs) Lena Dune, sex writer, BDSM meme creator. Check out her Instagram, Ask a Sub. Lena, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Oh, thanks, Dan. This is so great. Hi, Dan. I have a question about dissonance with uh, COVID protocols in a relationship. I'm in a long distance relationship and I am taking this COVID thing a lot more seriously than my boyfriend and it's causing tension between us. Ultimately, I know and we both know that as long as we get tested before we see each other, we're keeping each other safe. And we are doing that and we are taking that seriously. My question is about just talking about our day-to-day lives with each other and how to not, on my end, feel stressed and worried that he is going out and having drinks with people he doesn't know, clearly not six feet apart going into other people's houses, doing things that are clearly not keeping with CDC guidelines. He is getting tested, you know, probably every two to three weeks, at least once a month. How do I deal with my own emotions around stress and worry and bordering on resentment that he's doing all of these things while I am being the good girl and staying in and, you know, wearing masks and not doing those things that we both love to do for the greater safety of the population and not spreading this virus. I've suggested maybe he just lie to me and when he has drinks, just say, 
yeah, we were in a park, we were six feet apart and we both kind of know he's lying, but I don't have to stress about it. And he can keep doing the behaviors he wants to do. Help Dan. You know, when we talked a lot about HIV, when gay men navigating their relationships would talk about HIV, you would ask some guys if they were being safe and they would say, oh, yeah, I get tested regularly. Well, testing didn't confer immunity. Testing wasn't itself safety. Getting tested regularly didn't necessarily stop someone from getting HIV, from acquiring HIV or being capable of spreading HIV. Testing, which was a lagging indicator, would just – demonstrate whether someone had been safe or not in the past or lucky or not in the past. But people would conflate testing with safety. Are you being safe? Are you being responsible? Yes, I get tested. Testing was part of being responsible because if you tested regularly and you got infected, then you could get into treatment. Then perhaps you could take additional safety precautions with new sex partners and inform them of your HIV status. So they could be careful and cautious or more cautious or perhaps you could do different things together sexually if you were in a serodiscordant relationship and you knew it because you'd both tested. But people would talk about testing as if it was safety itself. I'm seeing some people do that now about COVID. Are you being safe? Yes, I'm getting tested regularly. Well, if you're going to bars and you're not wearing masks and you're hanging out with strangers and you're going into people's apartments, you are not being safe even if you're getting tested regularly. A test may show that he's been infected and then he can cancel his trip to come see you. You say you're in a long-distance relationship. But a test doesn't magically make all of the reckless things that your boyfriend is doing when you two are out of each other's sight safe. So he is being unsafe. And he's telling you exactly how unsafe he's being. And if he's not going into two weeks of quarantine and then testing before he comes to see you, before you two see each other, then his behaviors are putting you at risk. So if you want to tell him just not to tell you so that you don't have to know, so you can suspend your disbelief and pretend he's being safer than he's being, I suppose you can ask him to lie to you about it. But if he's going to lie to you about that shit, maybe he's also gonna or has been lying to you about whether he's testing. Maybe he's gonna or has been lying to you about whether he's going into quarantine for a couple of weeks before he comes to see you. Yeah, so he may be your big risk. Sounds like he is. You're wearing masks. You're engaged in social distancing. You're not seeing people as much as possible, and yet you're seeing him. Is that a risk you're willing to run? If you don't have a lot of contacts, the risk that you're taking by being with him is a risk you're taking on yourself alone. And that has to factor into your moral calculus. You can see him. You can take on that risk. You're not putting others at risk or many other people at risk. I assume you see somebody else at some time and you can factor that in. But if you're uncomfortable with basically the risks he's taking because the risks he's taking are the risks you're taking when you see him, then you might not want to keep seeing him, at least not until after there's a vaccine or after this is over, whichever comes first. Hi, Dan. I'm a 41-year-old single uh, straight male. I just wanted to share a story from long ago, kind of get it off my chest, and uh, then I'll get to my question. Uh, so when I was in my early 20s, 
uh, I became interested in a local female newscaster, so much so that um, I actually went down to where she uh, worked and asked her out. Now, maybe it's just me, but, you know, I, I happen to feel that just because someone's on TV doesn't make them better than everyone else, I, you know, or better than me. I just generally liked her and wanted to ask her out. She did say no, um, but she was very nice about it, even though, of course, I didn't get the answer I wanted. But I'm sure, as you can understand, it could have gone south very quickly. But, um, you know, afterwards, I even asked a friend of mine, or I should say, I told a friend of mine what, it ha uh, what I did, and he said, man, you've got balls. But so my question is, did I cross some sort of line? I mean, like I said, she, she was very nice about it. But it's um, just to be clear, I didn't ask her out just because she's on TV. Um, I wasn't trying to make a name for myself like, oh, yeah, check it out. I'm dating a local celebrity. Or, I do not have some sort of celebrity fetish or anything like that. Like I said, I just wanted to, I liked her. And I found her attractive. I just wanted to get her nowhere better. But I just want to know, um, did I do something wrong? I guarantee you that the woman whose workplace you turned up at to hit on her, I guarantee you when she walked to the car, to her car that night in the parking lot, she had her keys sticking out between her fingers by her knuckles so that if you or some other man, because I promise you other men have probably done the exact same thing to her, turned up at her workplace to hit on her after seeing her on TV. I guarantee you she walked to her car with her keys sticking out between her fingers in case she was attacked by you that night. Because although you knew you weren't a crazy person, you knew that you had the purest of motives. You weren't a star fucker. You weren't interested in her as a celebrity. It's just the fact that she was on TV brought her to your attention and you were attracted to her and so you felt you had a right then to turn up at her workplace and hit on her. She couldn't know that you were one of the good guys that would do a thing like that as opposed to almost all guys who do a thing like that, who are usually not good guys. Maybe most of them aren't going to attack her, but all of them, by dint of turning up at her workplace and hitting on her, have identified themselves as guys with no moral imagination, no empathy, no common sense. You couldn't project yourself into her experience as an attractive woman, an attractive public figure. You couldn't project yourself into her experience and know and realize and be able to work out for yourself that she probably gets a lot of attention like this, a lot of unasked for, unwelcome sexual attention for men who think they have a right to her time, to her attention, to show up at her workplace and ask her out on a date because they saw her on television and they thought she was hot. You have balls. You have no sense. What you did was not okay. You did cross a line. Just imagine how she felt. She may have been, you say, she was very nice about it, but a lot of women play that game with men who scare them. They are nice to them, nice to their faces in an effort to de-escalate the situation because when she told you no, she may have been concerned at that moment that you would have reacted negatively or violently as some men do to hearing no from a woman that they think they have a right to hit on or ask out or date because they find them attractive. She may have feared a violent reaction. And to prevent that, to make a violent reaction perhaps less likely, she was gracious. Gracious in the face of your selfishness, of your senselessness, of your inconsideration. So yeah, 
you definitely crossed a line. The purity of your motives in your head, don't erase that line that she reacted in a, as nice a way as she possibly could in that moment. Doesn't erase that line. That line is there and you crossed it. Please don't do anything like that again. Hi, Dan. This is a bisexual married woman in Florida. My husband is heterosexual. And um, today I'm calling because a little bit of an awkward question, but basically my husband has had some issues with hemorrhoids throughout the years and he is planning to see a doctor. But since my question is sex specific, I wanted to ask you. So we like to do some ass play with him and I have been dying to peg him for years. I did some of that earlier in our relationship and then it kind of died off as we were, you know, trying to get pregnant and then I was pregnant and not really uh, physically capable of doing it. But now I would like to go ahead again. However, because he's having um, more issues with hemorrhoids lately than before, I'm just trying to figure out how we can possibly make it safe and pleasurable for him. Um, we did try using uh, an anal toy type, not a, quite a butt plug, but something similar. And he said it was really good and felt good, but then, um, you know, was a little bit awkward like the next day and he didn't feel super great. So yeah, any advice? He is currently planning to talk to a doctor about maybe having surgery on the hemorrhoids. And I am wondering also how that might impact our future plans to, you know, have me play with his ass. Hemorrhoids develop when the veins that carry blood uh, away from the butthole and the rectum uh, swell up. They're sort of varicose veins that appear on your legs, but in your ass or just outside your ass. And they can be very uncomfortable, can be very painful. Some people find them aesthetically not that attractive, aesthetically awkward, and it can really complicate butt play uh, for people who enjoy butt play who also have hemorrhoids. Because they're easily irritated and they're full of blood, it is a bad idea generally to engage in ass play when you have hemorrhoids except for perhaps gentle stimulation. And a butt plug is actually a good option if someone has hemorrhoids and they like that full feeling because a butt toy, a butt plug, you set it and forget it. You get it in once and you leave it there until you're done. You, you don't, as with a dick or with a dildo, if you're pegging someone, drive it in and out over and over and over again. I would urge your husband to talk to his doctor. If he's going to go see a doctor about his hemorrhoids, if he might need surgery, he should also talk to his doctor about ass play. And if he doesn't have a doctor that he can talk with about ass play, he should go find a doctor that he can talk with about ass play. He's a straight guy. He's into ass play. There are lots of gay doctors out there, particularly in large urban areas, who are comfortable talking about butt sex with their patients. I know some straight guys who sought out gay doctors because they were into butt play and wanted to feel comfortable talking with their doctor about butt play. So finding a gay doctor may be something your husband wants to explore. If after putting a butt plug in his ass that one time, he experienced symptoms or discomfort the next day, yeah, you might not be pegging him for a while. You may be able to peg him post-surgery. If the surgery is successful and it takes care of the hemorrhoids, after he's had a nice long time to heal, you can work your way toward pegging. I would start with gentle touch. I would start with a ton of lubricant. I would start with vibrators laid across the anus, not shoved up the butt. I would start with butt plugs and really, really tiptoe toward it and take your time and do this with the guidance of 
his physician, of his doctor that he can talk to about the ways in which he'd like to use his ass. Now, there are people out there who think butt sex causes hemorrhoids. That's not true. I don't have hemorrhoids. My dad does. Case closed. The most common causes of hemorrhoids in women, childbirth, in men and women, a low-fiber diet straining to defecate, really having to push to take a shit can burst those blood vessels basically and cause hemorrhoids. Drink a lot of water. Eat a lot of fresh fruit and vegetable. Get a lot of fiber in your diet. It's not that hard to get a lot of fiber in your diet. Eat a few oranges every week. Not only will that put a lot of fiber in your diet, you won't get fucking scurvy then if you're eating a couple of oranges a week and you'll be far less likely to develop hemorrhoids. Good luck to you. Good luck to your husband. Please, please, I'm going to emphasize this point again. Find a doctor that he can talk to about his ass and all of the ways he's like to use it. Good luck to you. Good luck to your husband. I'm going to emphasize this point one more time. He needs to find a doctor that he can talk to about how he'd like to use his ass in the future. And in your husband's case, it's not just an exit. It's an entry. And he needs to find a sex-positive doctor that he can be completely open with about that. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to check in with Dr. Daniel Westreich, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Hey, Dr. Westreich, how you doing? Uh, I'm all right, Dan. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for coming back on. You came on the show in the first weeks of the pandemic and again a couple of months later, and we wanted to check in with you now and see how we're doing. My good friend Donald Trump Jr. told me the virus would disappear after the election. Is that what happened? Oh, boy. We're not doing well, Dan. Um, <laughs> Nancy nicknamed me Dr. Bummer, and, I, and you're having me on in an opportune time for that nickname. According to the we're we're in a massive surge of coronavirus cases right now. Getting my numbers from the COVID tracking project, there were 144,000 cases yesterday, yesterday, November and those, 11th. And those are cases that were detected or diagnosed. So that means there are many more. That's right. That's right. That's right. But that's the all-time high ever for the number of cases detected in a single day. There, The day before that, it was 130,000 or so. So just the, not only are there over 100,000 new cases a day, the number of new cases increased something like 13 or 14,000 in the last day. And we're just talking about the United States here, correct? Just the United States. That's right. Although there are surges in other parts of the world as well. There is, in the United States, there are 65,000 people hospitalized. There, are, there were 1,400 deaths from COVID yesterday. Um, it's, it, things are, things are really, really bad. How did we screw it up so badly? I'm old enough to remember when the head of the CDC went on television and said, if we all stayed home for four weeks and masked up, that we could defeat this thing. I, I know who I blame personally, this asshole who just <laughs> lost an election in the science community, among epidemiologists and researchers, where are you laying the blame? Because it's also surging in Europe. Um, they're going back into lockdowns in France and Germany and Austria. So in places where they seem to be getting it right, uh, they're now having surges that are requiring lockdown measures again. So it's not just us. Yeah, it's not just us. Although I think part of the blame is that it's it's very, there has not been a lot of 
support, economic support for the difficulties of a lockdown or for the difficulties of sort of isolating here, uh, which is something that it sounds like the incoming Biden administration is likely to change. Um, certainly the talk from the um, the task force that um, President-elect Biden has, has put together sounds promising in that direction. Um, I think the other thing is that it was, there were predictions for a long time that the fall was going to be very, the fall and winter were going to be very, very difficult. It's a season of a lot of respiratory disease transmission. It's the flu season. It's the season when people are spending a lot more time indoors. People are spending a lot more time in close quarters. And as a result, there is, I think, just more transmission Mm -hmm. of respiratory viruses. We know that uh, air circulation is incredibly important and there's just less of it when you can't be outside quite as much because the weather uh, temperatures are falling. And this isn't something we knew at the start. When we first spoke, uh, we were as concerned about people being infected outside as inside. And now we know that if you're outside, particularly if you're masked up uh, and you're outside, the risk of contracting the virus is very, very low. It seems that when people are indoors, in restaurants, in public transportation, uh, in gyms, uh, and there's air being recirculated, that's when you're most, or in your home, if you're having people over for, say, Thanksgiving, that's when you're most at risk. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought up Thanksgiving because this is, you know, this is the real, the real bummer right now is that, you know, being indoors, unmasked for significant periods of time with people who are outside of your little quarantine pod, however, however you may be defining that, is maybe the 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 most dangerous possible choice right now, given these surging numbers. And you know, we've got Thanksgiving and Christmas coming right up, and so there are going to be a lot of people traveling and a lot of people maybe having extended political arguments over the Thanksgiving table with our elderly relatives and none of this is, is a, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Um, we will not be going anywhere for Thanksgiving and our family will be doing everything on Zoom this year. And so we can have all of those typical political arguments from in relative safety. And that I think people should be doing that um, this year. It's just it's such a risky time. A lot of people that I've heard from casually are misinterpreting the good news that recently came out about a potential vaccine from Pfizer, that it had a 90 percent efficacy rate. It was 90 percent effective, which was a lot, which is a higher bar. They were there was talk that if the vaccine was 50 percent effective, they would roll it out. An early test show it's 90 percent effective. And a lot of people heard that didn't read anything else about it and just figured they could let down their guard now because the cavalry in the form of a vaccine was coming and was going to save Christmas, if not Thanksgiving, and we were all going to get back to normal. Can you give us the reality check on that? Yeah, well, so it, it's absolutely good news, the, what Pfizer reports, but there's there's a number of caveats. One of them is that it's not entirely clear exactly what the result is because they haven't published the paper yet and they haven't shown us the data. What they've shown us is a report of, you know, an interim analysis from a randomized trial, an early analysis before the trial is totally complete. And so things might change. It's probably broadly true that the vaccine candidate that they've got is going to be effective, whether it turns out to really be 90% effective, that's in question. It's not clear whether it's going to prevent infection entirely or just symptomatic infection. And then two, there's what 
uh, is sometimes called in in uh, public health and especially in vaccines as a last mile problem, which is that once we have a vaccine, we're going to need hundreds of millions of doses of that vaccine administered to hundreds of millions of people before, you know, even if it's that effective, there are enormous logistical hurdles to clear before life can really go back to normal. You know, it is an enormous relief to know that there are very promising vaccine candidates that appear to be on the cusp, right? Because again, six, eight months ago, it wasn't clear whether we could get this far in the vaccine process. So that's enormously comforting news. Dr. Fauci um, similarly has been, you know, urging people to have hope about this and, and being optimistic about the prospects for vaccines. But we're not all going to be vaccinated in time for Christmas. Dr. Fauci, who was saying positive things about the vaccine, was saying April, maybe, or May. So not in time for Christmas, Thanksgiving, or the inauguration of Joe Biden, fingers fucking crossed. So please, everybody, don't go to goddamn Washington, <laughs> D.C. to assemble on the mall and give them a bigger crowd than Trump had, which you could probably do with 30 people. Um, speaking of Dr. Fauci, where do you come down on the whole beheading Dr. Fauci issue? You hate to see something like that become a partisan issue where people are forced to take sides, but here we are. Yeah, I strongly oppose that issue. <laughs> we should not be beheading our hero of public health. Um, I want to back up and, and really highlight something that you said, that in other countries, in Europe, in Canada, where they're going into lockdown, there is government support, there's wage support for people who are losing their jobs. Um, you know, I have very close friends in Austria. Austria just went back into lockdown. The government is paying 80% of the wages of people who work in restaurants, of people who work in gyms, of people who work in places where they can't work from home and, you know, their places of employment are closed. We haven't done that in the United States. We have mass employment. I just, sometimes it just boggles my mind how unaware Americans are of how screwed we are over and over and over again compared to the citizens of other Western industrialized nations where people aren't bankrupted by medical bills uh, at the end of their life, where you don't have a system that's designed to destroy uh, generational wealth at the end of every generation uh, because people have to pauperize themselves to qualify for Medicaid or Medicare. Uh, and, you know, where education is supported. I remember once getting into a conversation with somebody I'd met who was from Europe who's getting a PhD, and I asked him about student loans, and he looked at me like I was crazy and said, I'm getting paid by the government to get my PhD because <laughs> the government's position yep. is that it's better to have more smart and educated people around than fewer, as opposed to my country where there's a political party that benefits <laughs> from idiocy, and so idiocy is what we not quite subsidize, pauperize. And it seems nuts that we're going to go back into a lockdown potentially and throw more people out of work without any government support. You know, the, the sort of really broad policy questions are a little bit out of my area of expertise, but I do think that it's a, one thing that I like to think about is, is that issues like universal basic income, for example, which is you know, essentially what's being proposed by in some quarters for the duration of this pandemic, right? Send every American a check for $2,000 every month until this is over. Um, that's a public health intervention. It's not just an economic intervention. It's a public health intervention. And I think there's a tendency to think of those two things as in separate lanes. And, and very often they're not. 
I want for the conspiracy theorists out there who listen to this show and there are a handful of them and I hear from them every once in a while via email. Uh, we're seeing 150,000 roughly new infections diagnosed every day. Some people are claiming we're not seeing as dire, uh, we're not seeing dire images from hospitals and video from hospitals like we were seeing last time, that there aren't as many deaths. Can you walk us through deaths as a lagging indicator and what that means for the idiots out there who are looking at the surge in new infections and thinking that this is just the flu or not as bad as the flu? Right. Well, so there there are two points there. One is, as you say, the, the fact that deaths are a lagging indicator, which is to say that there are cases, and then some weeks later, some of those cases are hospitalized. And then some weeks after that, some of those hospitalized cases will die. And so the 144,000 cases that we saw in the last day are going to turn into hospitalizations, which will turn into higher numbers of deaths. But we're not going to see those deaths for another three, four, five weeks, depending on where we are. So that's one of the issues. And that's come up again and again throughout this um, throughout this pandemic, um, it came up in the summer, it came up in the spring, it keeps coming up. We have to keep knocking it down like it's one of those gophers and you're whacking it at the uh, Dave and Buster's or whatever while you're drinking a beer. It's almost <laughs> but, as if somebody with the loudest megaphone in, in the world is promoting this <laughs> idiotic idea. The bully pulpit, I think it's been called. The bullshit pulpit, it should be known as for now. <laughs> Right. But the uh, the other issue that's that's interesting and a little complicated, but I think is important to walk through is that, you know, we have gotten better at treating cases of COVID-19 in the hospital. So in an absolute sense, a single individual case, um, at, you know, of a, of a given aged person is, is less likely to die now, probably, than they were six or eight months ago, because we're simply doctors have learned better how to treat and support people who have COVID-19. But all of those improvements depend on having enough hospital capacity to give everybody the level of care that's optimal. And as these cases surge, our hospital capacity goes down and down and down, and doctors and nurses get drawn more and more thin, and they are less and less able to give that highest quality of care. And so there's this really unfortunate and scary thing, which is that as the number of hospitalizations increases, we should expect to see the case fatality rate go up purely because the hospitals are overloaded. Oh my gosh. You are earning your nickname again on this visit, Dr. Bummer. Or <laughs> it's almost as if that nickname has been awarded to you by all of the idiots all over the country who haven't listened to the scientists, who haven't listened to the Dr. Fauci's, who have instead listened to you know, the idiot governor of South Dakota, who's now presiding over one of the worst uh, COVID-19 epidemics among all the 50 states. So I want to I don't want to end on, you know, a falsely positive note. But there is there anything besides the vaccine? I guess there's a little good news. There's the vaccine that seems to be very effective. We're going to wait to see the study itself come out. Um, doctors have gotten better at treating this. We don't want to wipe that improvement out by overwhelming doctors so they can't treat it. Is there any other good news? Yeah, I think that there are. I think the the other pieces of good news are that if we have the will, we know how to approach this problem a lot better than we did eight months ago. 
And I think the other the other piece is that we're starting to have the political will. President-elect Biden has appointed a panel of, I think it's 12 um, scientists uh, and doctors on his coronavirus advisory panel or uh, committee. And, you know, it, they're not exactly the 12 people I would have appointed, but they are very smart, very thoughtful people who are listening to the and reading the best science and are on it in a way that... I don't think we've seen so much yet uh, over the course of this pandemic. And not one of them is Jared Kushner. <laughs> yeah, one of them is one of them is an epidemiologist named Michael Osterholm who has this great phrase that that got reported recently which is that he doesn't want to scare people out of their wits, he wants to scare people into their wits. Uh, <laughs> which I think is a, a great a great message for people to to take with them. We we ought to be scared, but it's not beyond us to know what to do and to know how to take care of each other. Dr. Daniel Westreich, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and our Dr. Bummer with some good news there at the end. Thank you so much for coming on the show again, Dr. Westreich. Really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Take care. Hi, Dan. This is a 28-year-old gay male calling from San Francisco. Um, I've been in a relationship with a pretty good guy for about two years. Um, we had a rough patch with infidelity, but we were able to come through it. And my question for you and the listeners is, how long does that repair process typically look like? Is it a year? Is it two years? Um, we've done some exploration with a couple of therapists, and it seems like a lot is stabilizing out in a really amazing and beautiful way. I was also kind of curious to see what other experiences were. It takes time. Every couple is different. I would recommend that you read Esther Perel's The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, which is a terrific book, a terrific resource for couples whose relationships have been touched by infidelity, for couples who are working through infidelity, for couples who want to stay together and repair the relationship in the wake of an infidelity. It's often the case that we have examples in our lives of relationships that ended because of infidelity and not as many examples in our lives of relationships that survived infidelity. When someone cheats and gets caught and their partner wants to work through it, we don't hear about it. When somebody cheats and gets caught and it ends the relationship, we hear about it. But a couple that's going to stay together, often so as not to compound the humiliation of having been cheated on, they don't open up to their friends or family about the challenge that they're facing right now. So we often have all these examples in our lives of how cheating destroys relationships and infidelity ends relationships. And we don't have the examples in our lives of couples that survived infidelity, of couples that got past it, of couples whose relationships, because they suddenly had to get really honest with each other about who they were, what they were doing, what they wanted. And we don't have as many examples in our lives of couples who, because the cheating came out and they suddenly had to get really honest with each other and they went into couples counseling together. Their relationships may actually have improved, not because of the cheating, but in the wake of it, because of the honesty, because of the effort to reconnect. And we don't have those examples as readily available to us as the relationships that fall apart. And in the absence of those examples, it's hard to say how long it takes, three months, six months, a year, a couple of years. It depends. It depends on the couple. 
You don't, caller, you don't say who cheated. And I suspect it was you because if it was him, I think you might have mentioned that or maybe you both cheated. Maybe there was cheating on both sides and you're trying to work through that, trying to repair your relationship, trying to get it to a place of honesty and transparency and trust. Trust requires risk and vulnerability. It is sometimes the case after an affair that one person just can't trust the other person ever again. That's what they'll say. I can't trust you, which when you think about it is a little crazy because early on in the relationship when you barely knew each other, you invested that trust in one another. In the absence of any evidence that they were worthy of your trust, you trusted them. It was a leap of faith. It was an act of will. Now, some people can't do that in the wake of an affair. Some people can never trust the other person ever again. They may want to stay in the relationship. They may try to stay in the relationship. But because they're unwilling to reinvest their trust and suspend their disbelief really about whether this could happen, whether this person could cheat on them now that they know that they could because they did – The relationship is never going to be healthy and functional really again because one person is always in trouble and the other person is always aggrieved and suspicious. And that's what you have to be able to get past. That is a requirement for a couple to stay together after an infidelity. It can't be that one person is always walking on eggshells. One person is always having to apologize. One person is always being policed because they screwed up. And if you can't trust your boyfriend again, if he's the one who cheated or he can't trust you because you're the one who cheated or you both cheated and you're mutually suspicious at all times of each other, then you may have to part. Then no amount of time is going to repair this relationship if you can't trust each other again, if you can't will it. And as with all things, when it comes to a monogamous commitment, it helps if you don't expect perfection. It helps if you can embrace the idea of someone being pretty good at monogamy, but not necessarily perfect at it. Hi, Dan. Cis gay woman in her mid-20s calling from the UK. I've been on and off with my best friend for eight years. This best friend is Polly, and whilst I would be in an open relationship, I'm not Polly. In January, she told me she was in love with me, but I was in a monogamous relationship. Now that I'm out of the relationship, I think I might be in love with her, but she claims she's been through so much heartbreak with it all that she's no longer in love with me and is scared to let me back in, especially given we want different configurations of relationship. However, when I've asked for a firm answer about whether we're just friends, she says that she's still uncertain about our future and can't tell me for sure. Both of us have admitted to imagining that we will end up together one day and said that maybe now is just not our time. It's so hard for me to set boundaries because I want her around and close to me all the time. It seems like whenever I muster up the willpower to set boundaries and become more distant, she just starts flirting with me again and won't let me go. How do I deal with this person who is my best friend, best friends with all my best friends, and inextricable from my life, but doesn't want to be with me in the same way I want to be with her? It seems like she will never truly let me go. Eight fucking years. Eight fucking years. This drama has been going on, this drama between you two. You're both young. You're both lesbians. It seems that even if you don't want the same things now, seeing as you're young, a time may come in the future when you do want the same things, when you're more open to a polyamorous relationship or she'd be more open to monogamy or an open relationship that isn't polyamorous in the future. But right now you're not 
right for each other. Right now, it doesn't work. But right now, every time you begin to pull away from this woman that you would like to date, when you begin to pull away from her, when you try to establish a boundary, uh, put some distance between you two so that you can stop obsessing about her, she turns it up. She turns up the heat. She comes on to you. She flirts with you. She reels you back in to prevent you from dating someone else. So essentially she's keeping you in a kind of emotional and sexual holding pattern while she dithers about whether she wants to be with you or not. She's keeping you on a hook. Well, you need to climb the fuck off that hook. You need to tell her, look, right now you need to choose. I am open to dating you. You told me that you're in love with me. We're incredibly close. The When you told me that you were in love with me, I was – in a monogamous relationship with somebody else, now that I am single, now that I am free and clear and I could be with you, you tell me that there's been too much hurt and yet every time I pull away, you come running after me until I turn around and tell you that, okay, I want to be with you and then you run away again. I'm sick of these games and you have to choose. She has to choose. You have to tell her that she has to choose to date you or fuck the fuck off out of your life for now, not forever, just long enough for you to get over her or long enough for you two to both be on the same page, long enough for you two to want roughly the same things, including each other, which you don't right now. And you may have to make some effort. It sounds like she is completely embedded in your life, in your social circles. You have a lot of overlapping friendships. Sounds like a lesbian community to me. You need to make an effort to cut her out. You need to avoid spending time with her. Doesn't mean you need to burn it down. Doesn't mean you need to be an asshole to her or about her to your other friends. I'm sure your other friends are familiar with what is going on. I'm sure you all talk and you just need to say to them, look, for the next six months, the next year, until I'm dating someone else seriously, even casually, I can't hang out with whatever the fuck her name is because – because it's not good for me, because it's preventing me from moving on. She doesn't want me, doesn't want what I've offered her and just being around her makes it impossible for me to get over her. So for now, I'm just not going to be around her. Doesn't mean I hate her. Doesn't mean I hate you for hanging out with her. But for now, if you want me to come to the dinner party, please don't invite her. Or if you've already invited us both, please be understanding about the fact that I am not going to come. I'm going to go hang out with somebody else tonight who's not at the dinner party that shouldn't be happening right now anyway because of COVID. You need to establish clear boundaries and then you need to hold not just her to them but hold yourself to them. Before we get to your comments, let's read your tweets. Danny Lime tweets, listening to my voice on a Savage Lovecast from three years ago. I'm still scared but your listeners helped me, Dan. Ha ha. The pandemic. Oh my god. Love you at Fake Dan Savage. Love you too, Danny Lime. Hope whatever it was, it's better now. Bees Wings tweets, today's episode of the Savage Lovecast had a poly question that so reminded me of the last 10 years of my marriage that is currently ending in divorce. Sorry about that, Bees Wings. This is a particularly rough time to be going through a divorce. And wherever you are in the process, wherever you are on the planet, I hope you have lots of love and support and pot. Finally, Don Messino tweets, my first thoughts when I heard Biden won was hallelujah. My second was, I can't wait to hear at Fake Dan Savage on Tuesday so we can all celebrate together. I heard the opening music and it was everything I'd hoped for. We did it. Our long national nightmare is almost over. 
We did it. Yes, I agree. But it is not done. There are two runoff elections in Georgia that will determine who controls the Senate. If you care about fighting climate change, adding a public option to Obamacare, statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico and the likely four additional Democratic senators that would put in the U.S. Senate, all that hinges on control of the Senate in January. Dems John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are right now campaigning to unseat two almost cartoonishly, ridiculously corrupt GOP incumbents. ActBlue makes it easy to donate to both campaigns. Go to actblue.com slash donate slash GA Senate runoff and your donation will be split between them. Or better yet, make a donation to Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight. Fair Fight registered 800,000 new voters in Georgia and turned that state blue, at least where the president is concerned. Fair Fight is working to finish the job and turn both of those U.S. Senate seats blue on January 5th. Go to fairfight.org and click on donate. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, this is in response to the caller who asked whether a guy can stop and start his peace stream on demand. As a gay guy who's into piss play, here's my tried and true technique. Start peeing slowly and your flow will be easier to control. Try to stop the flow as soon as the first few drops emerge. Then let a few more drops out and then a few more. Then you can start to increase the amount and intensity of the stream with each burst. Also, if you want to pee a lot, try nettle leaf tea. It's a natural diuretic that doesn't taste too unpleasant on the other end. Hello, this response to the bisexual guy that's talking about thinking about uh, talking to his family. I'm in Oklahoma. I work in machine shops, and uh, it's very important to come out to everybody around you because you'll never know what family member they have that's going through something that you can you can help come out to them. Now, there's always a negative aspect. I mean, I never thought of the word faggot as something that I'd be called, but I've been called it many times. But you need to focus on who you can help by coming out. Hi, Dan. I just heard the latest episode with the gentleman who feels that his wife is getting too fat for him to be sexually attracted to her. Um, I know that one should be relaxed about these things and that people write in for advice and so forth, but I have to say that that really made me quite annoyed. My wife of 20-something years has been through breast cancer. It has left her body permanently altered and, as some people would say, disfigured. It has left her with other conditions as well that were difficult. I still love her. We still have an active, enjoyable sex life. Why? Because when I said I love you for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, I meant it. Your caller when he said, I still love my wife. Well, I really hope his wife was listening to that call and is able to recognize her husband's voice and decides to dump the motherfucker already. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question you want answered or a comment about this week's show you got to share? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hopefully you've already purchased your tickets for the upcoming Savage Love live stream. That's on December 12th. I'll be answering as many of your questions as I can get to live, live, live from my living room. Email your questions ahead of time to livestream at savagelovecast.com or just ask me your question when you join us. Grab your tickets now at savagelovecast.com slash events. 
And there are two more chances to check out the second volume of Hump's greatest hits. Head over to HumpFilmFest.com and get your ticket to watch a collection of some of our favorite dirty movies from the last 15 years. And great news for Hump filmmakers who are working hard out there. We understand you're under a lot of pressure, so we've extended the deadline for submissions to January 8th. Now you have more time to make your dirty movies and get a chance at hump fame, hump glory, and big hump cash prizes. Head over to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out more. Follow Lena Dune on Twitter and on Instagram at AskASub. Follow Dr. Daniel Weistrike on Twitter at EpidByDesign. And follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Please keep masking up, and thank you for downloading.